be seated. Well, if you're a guest with us, I want to welcome you. My name is Brad, and I have the privilege of being the pastor here. And I want you to know we aren't doing like some cool 2009 palette design set behind me. This is for uh, the kids' play that is coming up at me here at the school at Grandview Christian. Uh, they are doing a fiddler on the roof. And uh, I think we can take some Jewish scenes from that and make them work for us in the next couple of weeks, all right? But there's four words that are really important to us as a church, and they are this. They are gospel, word, community, and mission. So let's open the word of God, if you have one, to 1 Peter chapter 5. And let's do so as a community. Let's be reminded of the gospel and who we are in light of Christ and in him and let's let that word drive us to mission. So if you don't have a Bible with you, you'll find it on the screen behind me. You can dial it in on your phone if you have the app, uh, the Version app or something else. I'm using the CSB, the Christian Standard Bible. And I'd love for you to find 1 Peter chapter 5 as we end this epic letter together today. So if you're there, go ahead and say, I'm there. All right, and I'll give you time for those of you who are not. And I want to ask you this question are there any professional wrestling fans out there? Okay, none of you. This will totally not work. Okay, some of you are like, kind of. I grew up in the golden era of professional wrestling. And I'm talking about the era of Hogan and all those really good wrestlers. And it was totally real. At least I thought so. And I, sometimes I still do. But uh, my brothers and I have two older brothers, and one of our favorite things was to reenact these wrestling moves and wrestle with each other in the living room. And as you can imagine, mom was not thrilled about uh, these re professional wrestling reenactments with the Ultimate Warrior and Hulk Hogan. And she would say, if you're going to do that, go outside because you're going to break something. And it was one particular cold day in Ohio in the early 90s, and we decided no better time than now to have a wrestling match, which is what we love to do. And so we began to wrestle and fight, and we had a really good time. I suplexed my brother. He pile-drived me off the ropes. It was, you can't do that off the ropes, but you know what I mean. It was awesome. And at the end of it, we were sitting on the couch, out of breath, having the time of our lives, and we look over at the wall. And we see something that wasn't there before. A big old gaping hole right in the living room wall. And we're like, did you do that? I didn't do that. Did you do it? I, you, I didn't do it. So we come to the conclusion that neither one of us had actually done it. So we were perplexed about who it was. But we thought that we should probably tell dad about it anyway so that uh, he didn't find out on his own. And we brought him in told him, Dad, we don't know how this happened. It's crazy. Like, we didn't even go near that wall, but all of a sudden we got done with our really uh, nice time of talking, and there was a hole in the wall. And Dad's like, yeah, that's not how it works. Your mom and I have told you not to do this in the living room. Go upstairs to your room. You're done for the night. And so we went upstairs, and we got in our beds sheepishly, pulled the covers up, Guilty, knowing exactly what we had done, exactly what they said not to do, and exactly what they said would happen, did happen. And about 20 minutes later, because it was still pretty early in the night, Dad comes upstairs and he goes, hey, John, hey, Brad, why don't you get up? Let's go watch a movie. And we went downstairs, 
And dad didn't mention a word about the wall. And we watched a movie together. And then after it was all done, we went back upstairs and went to bed. And the next day, dad took his giant stereo and he put it in front of the hole in the wall. (laughs) And he never brought it up again. Dad gave us what we didn't deserve. We deserved punishment. Instead, he gave us a movie. The Bible calls what you've been, when you've been given what you don't deserve, grace. Unmerited favor. And that's exactly how Peter wraps up this letter, reminding us of God's grace, his unmerited favor. So would you stand with me out of reverence for God's word? 1 Peter 5, 10 through 14. Hear the word of the Lord, the apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, says this. The God of all grace, who calls you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you suffered a little while. To him be dominion forever. Amen. Through Salvanius, or Silas, a faithful brother as I consider him, I have written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. She who is in Babylon, chosen together with you, sends you greetings as does Mark, my son. Greet one another with a kiss of love. Peace to all of you who are in Christ, you may be seated. Peter ends out this letter and he says some things that are a little mysterious, some things that maybe we weren't noticing or some things that he had mentioned before. He says, those who are in Babylon greet you, chosen together, they send your greetings. Well, Peter hasn't talked about Babylon at all throughout this whole letter. So why is he now mentioning this ancient city, this ancient empire? Most scholars agree that Peter is speaking in code. He's using Babylon as an alias for the city of Rome because they had very, they had a lot of similarities. And why he's calling it Babylon instead of Rome is because as you remember, persecution during this time was most severe in the city of Rome. And it went out from Rome to the other places where these churches are now scattered, who this letter is written to in modern day Turkey. And Peter is writing from Rome, and he calls it Babylon because he doesn't want this letter to get into the wrong hands. By so doing, if they see that it's from Rome, it will bring further persecution upon the church of God, and he doesn't want that to happen more than what they're already facing. But he wants them to know the brothers and sisters who are here in Babylon, Rome, they're with you. They love you. And as you remember last week, your situation is not unique. There's Christians all around the globe that are going through the same things that you are. So are we in Rome. We love you. We greet you. We are in this together. Peter would be martyred from Rome. Church history tells us that uh, he was actually crucified upside down because he didn't think it right to die the same way that his Lord Jesus did. And here he is in Rome, thinking that his death is in the near future. 
And he wants to know these churches that he, to, that he loves, he wants them to know what God's will is for them. If you were about to die, what were the things that you would want those who are near and dear to you to know? What kind of things would you tell them? Well, we saw last week as he's closing out this letter, he's saying, I want you to live in victory. It is possible for you and I to live in victory despite our struggle, despite the circumstances of our life. God enables us to live in victory. And he closes out this, closes out this letter and here's what I want you to see. Peter wants you to know from beginning to end, it's all about God's grace. Peter wants you to know that from beginning to end, it's all about God's grace. Verse 10, the first part of it, it says this. The God of all grace. Just linger on that for a moment. Let that sink in. Peter says, the God of all grace. That's his title. That's who he is. What a description. He doesn't say the God of all judgment, the God who shows grace. No, he says all grace comes from him. Any grace that you receive or that you extend in life is an extension of our creator God who himself is the definition of grace. It's always been about grace. Some people think that the Old Testament was all about law and then God changes and transitions to being about grace in the New Testament. That's wrong thinking. God has always been about grace from beginning to end. Salvation has always been through faith, through the grace of God. He is the unchanging God who is full of grace and truth. At the core of who he is, he is a God that loves to give people what they do not deserve. Your breath, your food the relationships you have, the planet that stays in orbit that we live on, all by God's grace, God is doing it all, and he's not doing it begrudgingly. He's not like, oh, that's right, that's who I am. I'm supposed to show grace. No, he's showing grace because that's what he absolutely loves to do. He's overflowing with it, grace upon grace, because that is who he is. And so as Peter brings us into this conclusion, he's going to show us God's grace played out in our lives. What do you think of when you think of God? Is it grace? That's who he is. A.W. Tozer said, the most important thing about you is when you think about God, what things come to mind? What thoughts come to mind about God when you think about him? God is a God of all grace. In verse 10, Peter unpacks this further. He says, the God of all grace who called you into his eternal glory in Christ. Here's what God's grace does. God's grace calls you to eternal life. God's grace calls you to eternal life. He called you. 
You might not have realized it, but if you are a Christian today, it is because God has wooed you to himself by his grace. He was drawing you in. Perhaps even now he's drawing you into himself to bring you to himself by his grace. It's an invitation that he's reaching out to you and drawing you in with. Don't you love being invited to something? Doesn't that feel good when you don't have to make your way into something, but you are invited? Isn't that a great feeling of being wanted, being received? I'm the guy that always likes to get into places where he doesn't belong. Like if you put a do not enter sign out, and I've grown a lot since then, okay? But if you, in my past, if you put a do not, center, do not enter sign out, it might as well have said, Brad, do your best to get in here. That's what I love to do. So if there was a skybox seat or a VIP section that I was not supposed to sit in, I would make it my goal to get into that area. And I just had this feeling of, I wasn't invited here, but I'm here. I don't have access to this, but this is where I am. Most of the time it didn't work. But there was one time where a guy actually invited me into the skybox. I think it was the Iowa Cubs, which isn't a huge deal, but it was still really cool. And he's like, sit down. Whatever you want to eat, it's all free. Enjoy it. The VIP treatment. Isn't that something where you get invited, you don't have to be looking over your shoulder. It's like, hey, I belong here because the person who is supposed to be here invited me to be here. There's only one person that can invite you into a relationship with God, and it's God himself. He's the one that gives you the invitation. And he calls you not just into a relationship, but into eternal life. I remember when I was a kid, and I'd heard the gospel, the good news that Jesus is calling me into eternal life, and I heard it like I'd never heard it before, and I just felt this overwhelming urge, this sense of, I need that, I need Jesus, and I place my trust in him. Do you remember that day where you understood that for the very first time, and you felt God just calling you to himself? Well, in that moment, when you believed in Jesus, you were granted eternal life. Now, I want you to understand this. When the Bible speaks of eternal life, it isn't speaking of something just in the future. It's speaking of a present reality right now. So if you know Jesus as your Savior, in this moment, you already possess eternal life. It isn't something that you gradually grow in or you work hard enough and eventually you can gain it. No, because of Christ and you believe in his death and resurrection, you are granted eternal life right now. And the way that that happens, he says, you have been called to his eternal glory in Christ. So the invitation is offered to you by the only one that can grant the invitation, the one who has never sinned, took what you deserved, what I deserved, and made it his own, that is my sin, and gave me forgiveness instead on the cross, and then showed everything was paid for by rising again from the dead. And that's why we can say with Ephesians 2, 8, 9, amen to this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's a gift of God. You can't invite yourself. God extends the invitation to what you do not deserve. 
eternal life. And what this meant for those that were in exile, that were facing affliction on every side, as Peter reminds them that they have right now eternal life, they see the bigger picture. They see that my trials are moving towards something, not to nothingness, but meaning and value in eternity. So what's that mean for you and your affliction and your trial? They're on purpose. They're for something. And they're moving you towards eternity. All by God's grace. So I want to ask you this morning, do you have eternal life? And to answer yes or no to that is to say, I've trusted that Jesus died for me and rose again. If you believe that, yes, you have eternal life, not in the future when you do enough good things, but right now in this moment. So beginning to end, it's all by God's grace. God's grace calls us to eternal life, but his grace also is working in us right now as God's grace sustains you in present trials. God's grace sustains you in present trials. We see here a bunch of forceful verbs that Peter now moves into. And all of these verbs are brought about or executed by God himself. It's grace from, it's grace from beginning to end. He calls you to salvation to one day inherit fully realized eternal life. And this future reality now motivates us in present trials. The second half of verse 10 says this. He will himself restore, establish, strengthen and support you. That's what God will do. And that's what he is doing. That first word to restore, the Greek actually means to mend. So when you see restore in verse 10, the second half of it, it means to mend. It's the same word when Peter comes upon James and John and their father and they're mending their fishing nets in the book of Matthew. It's the same word that Peter is using here, a fellow fisherman, knowing what this word meant to mend their nets. He's saying Jesus is going to sit down and use his hands to mend you and to put you back together. And let me say this right now that you need this constantly every single day to be restored by Jesus by his grace. How good is a fishing net with a bunch of holes in it? It's ineffective. And so you and I, every moment, as we acknowledge our neediness, we sit at the feet of Jesus and we let him do his restoring, mending work to draw close to him and to make us people of his grace so that we are effective in his kingdom to bring other people into his grace. Do you take the time to let God restore you, to mend you, Trying to do it on your own is a mess. When I used to go fishing with my dad, let's face it, dad didn't get any fishing done. All he did was bait the hooks and untangle our lines the whole time. But if he wasn't there, our lines would be tangled and we would catch absolutely nothing. And if you don't sit under the grace of God and let him mend you this beautiful picture of God's sustaining grace... He restores you when you sit in his presence and lets him mend you. So I don't know what you faced this last week. I don't know currently what you're going through. Many of you actually do. And I would say to you, sit under the grace of God. 
Let him restore you in the only way that he can and mend those holes in your nets, making you more like him by his grace and making you useful for his service. Think about my own life and just this past year, it's been a, a year of joy and pain. Joy and sorrow mixed together. Can you relate? You know what I'm talking about? Hardship and joy often run on parallel tracks, don't they? Something amazing can be happening and hardship can be close by. And me, myself, as your pastor, must daily sit under God's mending grace, under the balm of his word and his spirit. And I would encourage you, if you know that you're needy, you need to do the same. Secondly, after he mends you, he will establish you. Establish means this, to stand you up again on your own two feet. What he's saying to these believers that are scarred, perhaps even tried and failed, God comes up by his grace and graciously stands them up again, shakes the dust off their bruised knees in their defeat, and he says, get up, you're okay. Keep going. You're all right. I'm going to stand you up again. I love this video from one of my daughters learning how to ride the bike. Okay, here is August. She's just learning how to ride a bike today without training wheels, and she's going to do awesome. Are you ready, Augie? All right, here we go. Put your legs up. I said I'm not ready. Put your feet up. You've already done it like 10 times. Ready? Here we go. Ready? Set. Put your feet up. Start pedaling. Start pedaling, start pedaling. <laughs> paddle, 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 paddle. Don't stop paddling. Keep paddling, keep paddling, keep paddling. There she goes. Oh, yes. <laughs> Don't turn me in for that. I know she didn't want to, but it's a long time ago, okay? But sometimes that's what you need. You're like, no, I can't do this. And God's like, yeah, you can actually. You've done it a bunch of times before. Let's go. You're going to fall. You're going to get bruised, but I'm going to be right there. I'm holding the seat, and I'm going to pick you up, and I'm going to dust you off, and I'm going to encourage you to keep on going again. And like a great dad, when you fail, he doesn't go, oh, I can't believe you. You only rode like six feet. Are you kidding me? That's awful. Take the bike and chuck it in the dumpster as we're done. It's not what God does. He loves to watch you progress in him. And when you fail, he picks you up and he dusts you off and he says, keep on going. These first two are future and present realities. The next two are right now. It says that he will not only establish you, but he'll strengthen and support you. There's not really any hidden meaning in these words. They're exactly what they say. God, by his grace, is going to strengthen and support you. I got a great text last week and an encouragement note on the same day when I needed it. And it was so encouraging and uplifting to me. It strengthened me and it supported me. In the same way, it's if God is sending you an encouraging text by his grace or a note that you get in the mail that you open up and God says, you got this. Let's go. You can do this. I'm here to strengthen you. It's not in your own strength. It's not a one-time strength. It's an ongoing, constant need for Christ. 
I love this quote by D.L. Moody. He says this. And D.L. Moody was very uneducated and not intelligent, and God used him so greatly. And he says this. The fact is, we are leaky vessels. And we have to keep right under the fountain all the time to keep full of Christ and still have fresh supply. If you got a pot that has a leak in it, if you try to fill it up once, what happens to all the water? Runs out everywhere and it's a mess, isn't it? But what happens when you put that same pot under a running faucet? It stays full, doesn't it? In the same way, this is what Moody is saying. He's saying, we are all leaky, cracked vessels, desperate in need of grace. And the only way that we can be sustained and filled up is to stay under all the time the constant grace supply of God. Staying connected to him, knowing that you're needy and being with Jesus and with his people. But Peter goes on to say, all this is what happened after you've suffered a little while. Ooh, come on, Pete. We've suffered a lot already. It's like, no, it's going to happen after you've suffered a little while. Listen, if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, God doesn't promise that he's going to take you out of suffering. But he does promise that he's going to give you his sustaining grace in the midst of it. A little while To some of you who are in the thick of it, a little while seems like forever. It doesn't feel short. It feels like it never stops. But Peter is saying here, in light of eternity and the joy of being with Christ in eternity, your present suffering is going to feel like a little while. Oh yeah, I remember that. There's just that little moment where I was suffering in light of all of who God is in, eternal, in eternity, when you enter into Christ's eternal glory, it will all seem very short. So keep on going. This is why we must have an eternal perspective. In the end, God will fully restore you. He will establish you. He will fully strengthen you and support you. And then verse 11 reads this way. To him be dominion forever. Amen. God's grace calls you to eternal life. It sustains you in present trials. And God's grace leads us to worship. It seems rather random, doesn't it? All of a sudden, Peter's just like, and to dominion to be his forever. Amen. Well, that was weird, Peter. It's not weird if you're captivated by God's grace. It might seem random to us, but Peter is just talking about the grace of God, and all of a sudden he goes, isn't he so good? Isn't God amazing? And that's what happens. When you are blown away by the grace of God, the only thing that it should lead you to is worship, spontaneous praise. Does that ever happen to you where you're driving along, and you're thinking about the grace of God, and you just sit there and you go, oh man, God is so good. That's what Peter's doing here in writing. And I would say if it doesn't happen to you very often, it's probably because you're not focusing on God's grace very often. Because the more that you are captivated by God's grace, the more of a worshiper you will be. 
Staying under that faucet, being full and seeing God's goodness and soaking it in, it inspires worship in the people of God. And where do we find the greatest act of grace? We look to the cross where Christ suffered in our place. We meditate on his substitution that I don't deserve eternal life, I don't deserve forgiveness, but God offered it to me in his son Jesus and I worship him in it. And I say to him, be dominion forever, amen. And then verse 12, Peter gives us the premise of his whole letter. He says, this is exactly why I have written these things. He says, I've written to you briefly in order to encourage you and to testify that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let's pray together.